Good morning once again. We are grateful that you're here, and I, I'm very thankful for Pastor Craig allowing me the opportunity to share with you this morning. I am appreciative any time that he allows me the privilege to preach at Ivy Creek. Uh, I uh, hope that you have your Bibles. Take them and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin with uh, verse 32 and read through verse 35. Uh, here at the close of the Hall of Fame of Faith, we have a, an, an eclectic group listed. They are listed and are somewhat the honorable mention of the Hall of Faith. God used each of these men for His purpose, but each one had well-defined weaknesses. One was prideful and narcissistic. Another one chased after wild and ungodly women. Another one was an adulterer and murderer. One had no control over his children and family, and one was so weak and fearful, God had to send him four signs before he would fully obey the Lord. Sounds like some folks that honestly we can relate to this morning, more so than we would like to admit. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 11, 34 through 35, and follow along there. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of, uh, the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the allies and women received their dead raised to life again let's go to the Lord in prayer dearly father we are grateful for your word that it is truth and it is life for our lives father I pray that in these next few minutes that you would speak to our hearts father I pray that it would be pleasing and honoring to you to use a weak and flawed instrument to communicate the unsearchable truths of your scripture. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that hearts would be spoken to. Father, that the gospel truth would pierce hearts and lives. And Father, that our lives would be brought into greater conformity with the truth of your word, your righteousness, and your holiness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the first few minutes, we're going to look, or for the next few minutes, we're going to look at the life and experiences of Gideon. I want you to take now, and I want you to turn back in your Bible, all the way back to Judges chapter 6. And we are going to take a journey through the next few chapters of Judges to see what God would like to show us and reveal to us about Gideon. Most of us are very familiar with Gideon. You probably remember something about his life. You might be like my nine-year-old Andrew who asked him if he remembered or knew who Gideon was in the Bible and he said, oh yeah, he's the guy that defeated a big army with a small army. And that's pretty much a lot of times what we know about Gideon. And that would 
there's a lot of truth in that. But my hope this morning is for us to learn a little more about Gideon and much more about how God interacts with his people. In Judges chapter 6, it begins by telling us the spiritual state of Israel. The first verse starts and says this, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. We see from this one verse that Israel was a rebellious nation. They had forgotten the God that had led them out of Egypt, out of captivity, had led them by the hand of Joshua into the promised land. They had received their allotments. They were living there. And now they had turned from Yahweh, the true God, and were now worshiping Baal, the Canaanites God of fertility. As a result of their disobedience, God uses Midian to judge his people. He gives them over to the Midianite and Amalekite armies who for seven years annually invade and raid Israel's crops and livestock. As a result, the Israelites are living in caves, dens, and remote hideouts during the harvest season. Verse 5 says that their armies were more numerous than locusts to the point that their soldiers nor their camels could even be counted. This harvest season is no different. But is it different? The crops are planted. The harvest is ready. The armies arrive. And the farmers head for the hills. But wait, there is something different in verse 6. Verse 6 says, So Israel was greatly impoverished. They were starving to death because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The children of Israel, after seven years, cried out to the Lord. They finally called on God for help. God finally has their attention. You know, God is kind and gracious to use tough times to get our attention. The Lord hears the cry of His people and He responds to them. However, probably not how they had hoped. It's kind of like me calling my favorite mechanic when I'm broken down on the side of the road. But instead of him coming out to help me, he sends a philosopher like Craig to help me. I'm not a lot better off at that point when he shows up. And here what we see is that God, he sends a prophet. But listen to what the prophet does. The prophet confronts Israel with their sins. Israel had forgotten all the Lord had done. They were worshiping the gods of the Amorites and had not obeyed God's commands. They had broken the first two commandments that Moses had, had given them from Mount Sinai that said, 
You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make for yourselves no graven images to worship. Their suffering is a direct result of their sins. Their suffering is a direct result of their sins. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Could it be, as we look at disasters and destruction, as we look at evil of mass proportion, could it be that God is graciously and mercifully shouting into his megaphone to rouse our deaf world? Next, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, a son of a farmer who he finds in his father's wine press. But Gideon is not pressing out grapes. Instead, he's threshing wheat in the middle of that wine press. It's not a very efficient way to thresh wheat, but he's there hiding from the Midianite army, hoarding what little harvest that he has, attempting to get a little bit of grain that can be the sustenance for their lives because Gideon and his family are starving and are desperate. But there in that wine press, the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Is there a more sarcastic statement in all of Scripture that is recorded? He's in a wine press, hiding from the Midianite army, beating out a little bit of wheat, and the angel says, The Lord's with you, and you are a mighty warrior. Gideon, a mighty man of valor, we just don't see that. There must be a mistake. God must have made a mistake. How can he be a mighty man of valor? A warrior with strength of mind and of spirit that enables him to encounter danger with firmness and personal bravery. That's not a description of the Gideon that we have seen so far and frankly the one we're going to walk with over the next few minutes. He is a timid son of a farmer hiding in the wine press hoping just for enough wheat for a loaf of bread. Although the angel calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. The reality was Gideon was a flawed and weak leader. Listen to Gideon's response to the angel's grand greeting. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? 
how he brought us out of Egypt. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us over to the Midianites. How much that sounds like me and possibly sounds like you. Tough situations, disasters and disease, death, broken relationships, more month than money, and we find ourselves, the first thing we do is saying, God, where are you? Where are you at? If you are really in control and you are who you say you are, how can this be happening right now? It's interesting. God does not answer Gideon's question. Rather, he simply reassures him of the plan and his future success. God says, go in this might of yours and you, Gideon, will save Israel. Here we find a very important lesson. God does not see us as we are but as we can become when used by Him. He sees us as the instrument that we can be in His hands and not as we are in our own strength. Gideon again questions and begins with excuses. There must be a mistake. His clan is the weakest in Manasseh. He is the youngest in his family. The Lord again responds by reaffirming to Gideon, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. The Lord says it doesn't matter how many men they have because it will seem like they are only one man to defeat. It's here that Gideon's fears and doubts threaten to cripple him. He asks for his first sign. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. At this point, Gideon breaks away and he goes and he prepares an offering for the Lord. He prepares a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah, a flour. We don't measure anything in ephahs today, but some of you are familiar with how much a bushel is. An ephah was over half of a bushel. That's a lot of flour. When you barely have enough to sustain you and your family, we see that both the goat and this huge amount of flour were scarce. But Gideon at this point does recognize the demand to provide an appropriate offering to the Lord. He brings it out and he places it on the rock. The angel of the Lord touches it with the tip of his staff and fire rose out of the rock, consumed the meat and the bread, and at that moment, the angel 
of the Lord is gone. I just love what, it, it, what Gideon does next. Gideon's next statement, recorded in verse 22, says, Now Gideon perceived. Gideon could be akin to me, just a little on the dense side. But at this point, he perceived that that was the angel of the Lord. You know, you think fire just came out of the rock and burned up the goat and the bread that was in front of you. Yes, I think that, Gideon, you have the angel of the Lord before you that has spoken these words to you and has given you a calling and an assignment from the Lord. But it's at that realization that Gideon's fears return. And he cries out to the Lord and says, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And it's at that point that he thinks that he will surely die. And here again, we see the patience and kindness and tenderness of our Lord when he says to Gideon, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. That night, Gideon gets another message from the Lord. The Lord speaks to him and says this, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal and his father's, uh, that, that, is, uh, that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord on top of this rock. And take the second bull and offer and for a burnt sacrifice using the wood from the image you have cut down. These verses reveal to us how pervasive the idolatry was in Gideon's family. On their property, they had this altar that was built there to worship Baal. This was the influences that were driving Gideon's life. But Gideon takes ten servants with him, and he does as the Lord commands but here I love the candor of the Holy Scriptures. And especially concerning her heroes. Here we're told, as Gideon has obeyed, we're told what his motives are. We're told that he obeys, but he obeys at night because he is afraid of his father's household and of the men of the city. So that's why he acted at night. The next morning, the men of the city are not happy folks. They come to his father, want to know who did this. They end up finding out that it was Gideon, Joash's own son, who has destroyed this altar and has offered this sacrifice, killing the prized bull that the entire community used. It is at that point that they demand that Joash hand over his son that they may kill Gideon. It is Joash 
the, who comes to Gideon's defense with an incredible rebuttal to the men of the city as he asked them, if Baal is a god, why must you contend for him? Why must you defend Baal if he is a god? Let him defend himself. As a result of that, Gideon is preserved. The men have no answer. And it is this point in the story where our attention turns to the Valley of Jezreel. The Midianite armies are gathering and preparing to their annual raid to come. But Gideon, the flawed and weak leader, blows his trumpet calling for all the fighting men of Israel to gather to him. And amazingly, they do. Although he is bold, it is a bold move, we see that Gideon is still fearful and weak. The next thing that he does is he comes before God and says, can I get just one more sign? I need another sign to reassure me that, that you're going to save Israel. I'm sure that that is a concern, but I also believe that Gideon's motive is that, God, you're going to save me, that you're not going to leave me hanging out here. I can relate to that some, because oftentimes that's the prayer that I find myself praying is, God, you're not going to leave me out here hanging out here, are you? Well, Gideon asked for a fleece of wool on the threshing floor to be wet with dew, which would be a natural occurrence, but that all the ground around it would be dry, which would be a very unnatural occurrence. God graciously agrees. The next morning, Gideon awakes and he goes out and not only is the fleece wet, it is soaked and he is able to wring out water from it. God goes over and above that abundantly more to show Gideon his faithfulness and to assure him of his deliverance of Gideon and the Israelites. You would think that after seeing two great signs that Gideon would be filled with confidence and he would be assured but not so fast. It's about now in this story that we begin to look and say, God, are you sure that he was the best choice out of all of Israel, of the Israelites, to lead these people? Because it's at this point that Gideon asks for yet another sign. But this time, he gets a little more creative. It's not that he wants the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry, but for the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. And amazingly, God patiently accommodates Gideon's request. 
as we come to the close of chapter 6, we think, God, why did you choose this guy? Why would you use an instrument like this? But I remind you, God sees so much more than we do. God sees so much more than we do. At the beginning of chapter 7, Gideon has his troops rallied and prepared for battle. In the following verses, Gideon goes from a coward to a conqueror. Gideon moves, or God moves Gideon. God moves Gideon from a hiding farmer to a triumphant warrior. But first, the Lord has a shocking message for Gideon. He says to him, the people who are with you are too many. Okay? Too many. The number and the odds right now are about 32,000 to 135,000. Gideon, you got too many men. Gideon's got to go, wait a minute, it's, it's, it's a greater, I'm down one to four. God says it's too many men. It's too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. But the Lord continues in that statement to tell him why it's too many. He says it's too many lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. God knows Israel's propensity to take and steal God's glory for what he has done and take it for their own and make it that it was in their own strength, their own power, their own ability that they accomplished what only God alone could accomplish. There's days we can relate to that. Many times where we take credit for what only God could have done. So the Lord tells him to let all those who are fearful to go home. All those that don't want to be here, all those that have got something better to do than go and fight one to four odds can go home. 22,000 choose to go home. Gideon is left with 10,000 soldiers. But the Lord's not done. He comes back to Gideon and says once more, the people are still too many. You still got too many troops. It's 10 to 1, 13 to 1 odds, but there's still too many. And it's at this point that we come to probably the most well-known portion of this passage. And God tells Gideon the strangest, most odd direction of culling out people and especially culling out an army to go and do battle. When we have the story of the kneelers and the lappers, or maybe it's the lappers and the kneelers, when you read these few verses, 
you read it one way and then you're like, okay, I know which group is the right group that gets to stay. And then you read it again and you go, oh, wait a minute, they don't get to stay. It's a different group. Well, here's the point. When it was all said and done and they were, they were divided up, 300 got to stay and 9,700 went home because they didn't drink water the right way. I can only imagine one of those 9,700 guys who was commanded and told to leave going and knocking on his door and his wife coming to the door and opening it and saying, Honey, what are you doing home? And saying, Well, Gideon sent me home. You're supposed to be fighting for our nation, protecting us. He says, but he told me to go home. She said, what did you do wrong? He said, I, I think I drank water the wrong way. There's nothing about this that makes any sense. There's nothing that's logical. But we oftentimes in our attempt to take and make sense of certain parts of Scripture, we try to take and read into this that those 300 who drank water the appropriate way whether it was lapping or whether it was kneeling. Uh, but whichever way they drank it, that somehow they were more vigilant. Somehow they were more worthy to go and do battle. Somehow they were more prepared to go and to defeat the army of 135,000. I do not believe that God has any concern about how these men drank water. They were of no greater use to him whether they lapped or whether they knelt. God was not looking for special ops, green berets, and Navy SEALs. He was looking to get to a number. He was looking to get to a number to where no one, Israel or anyone else, could claim glory for this victory that everyone would look and say, only by the hand of Yahweh, the God of Israel, did they defeat the armies of the Amalekites and the Midianites. At this point, when he sends those 9,700 men home, Gideon is well on his way to moving from a coward to a conqueror. But before he gets there, God graciously comes to him and says, I have delivered. I have delivered into your hand Midian. But if you are afraid, more sarcasm, Gideon afraid? Oh no, it could not be that Gideon would be afraid. But he says, if you're afraid, Gideon, go down to their camp with your servant, Pura, and hear what they are saying. So they sneak down to the camp where the army is resting, except for two guards that are standing watch. One of the guards says to the other, the other one, I have a dream. 
To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his, command, uh, his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. God takes a guardsman, turns him into a prophet, interprets the dream, and again reaffirms the promise to Gideon that the Midianites, they're already defeated. The victory has been won. What are the chances? There's no chance that this would happen. This is just God graciously affirming and reassuring His plan of deliverance to Gideon for the fourth time. It is at this point Gideon gets it. it everything connects for him. And it's at this point that he worships God. He returns to the, to the camp no longer a coward. He leads his men down to conquer the 135,000. The 300 take their trumpets. They blow their trumpets. They break the pitchers. They hold up their torches. But do not miss this important statement. It was not Gideon or the 300 men who won the battle. God's Word says it was the Lord who set every man's sword against his companion. It was the Lord who did. Gideon's victory belonged to the Lord and the Lord alone. Listen to what Gideon said in chapter 8, verse 3. God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian. And in verse 7, he confidently told the people of Succoth that he would return after the Lord had given the kings of Midian into his hands. After the great victory, the people asked Gideon and his sons to rule over them like a king. But Gideon wisely refuses it and says, the Lord the Lord shall rule over you. The story of Gideon is ultimately not about Gideon. It is about God and how he relates and operates in the lives of his children. God uses tough times to get our attention. God sees much more than we do. God moves us from who we are and who others think we are to what He desires for us to become. God causes His plans and His purposes to succeed so that He alone is glorified. But although, but although Gideon makes great strides in his faith and is used mightily by God in an amazing way. Gideon, unfortunately, does not finish well. 
The men of Gideon returned from battle with the plunder from their victory. And Gideon asked them to throw all the earrings, all the gold from the plunder. And they put it with what they had gotten from the kings of Midian. They take it and they throw it onto a blanket. And the Bible tells us in Judges 8, 27, then Gideon made it into an Ephrod, which was a sacred garment, a sacred garment worn by the high priest and set it up in his city, his hometown of Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. All Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Israel and Gideon and Gideon's family returned to idolatry. My friends, it is tough to finish well. It is hard to finish well. Past successes, past faithfulness do not guarantee future faithfulness. God's desire for you and for me is that we would finish well. And I know that so many of you long to hear the words of our Lord. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Even the great evangelist Billy Graham, he said, one of my greatest fears, one of my greatest fears is of not finishing well. We also see this in Paul's life before the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He just wants to finish his course and to finish it well. Through this great narrative, we have heard God call out Gideon to be a mighty man of valor. But in reality, Gideon was a part of a rebellious nation. He was a weak and flawed leader who goes from being a coward to a conqueror. But his victory belongs to the Lord alone. But ultimately, Gideon does not finish life well. So this morning, as we come to the close of this sermon, you may be a bit surprised by our sermon in a sentence. It states, there is only one mighty man of valor, and he is Christ Jesus, who came to save you and me from our enemies. There is one mighty man of valor, and it is Christ Jesus. And if it is pain that gets our attention, that calls us to the foot of the cross, there's no greater symbol of pain than Christ's suffering on the cross. But for you and I, the cross of Christ is precious. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But the cross of Christ is precious 
to those who are being saved. Some of you today, you're asking God for a sign. God, show me. Show me that you're faithful. Show me that I'm not forsaken. The greatest sign that God has given to His people is an empty tomb. A resurrected Savior that has conquered death, hell, and the grave. That the victory is already won. That we are partakers in that victory. That we have done nothing to earn it. But it is all God accomplishing it on our behalf. I pray that that is the sign that you and I look to when we feel forsaken and we feel abandoned. And when we ask the hard questions, when life is tough and when struggles come, that we look to the cross and we remember the empty tomb because there is only one mighty man of valor and it is Jesus Christ.